Welcome to a recording from a Latrobe Asia public event. India is a country with a fast-growing population, generating vast quantities of waste, sewerage and pollution as it aspires to join the throwaway prosperity of the developing world. To explore India's experience with public sanitation, recycling and waste, we celebrate the publication of Waste of a Nation, Garbage and Growth in India, a book by Asa Doran, Associate Professor in Anthropology at the College of Asia and the Pacific at the Australian National University, and Robin Jeffrey, Emeritus Professor of Politics at La Trobe University. They were joined on stage by Dr Dolly Kikon, a lecturer at the School of Social and Political Sciences from the University of Melbourne, and the event was chaired by broadcaster and writer Sally Warhaft. It was co-hosted by the Australian India Institute and held at the Wheeler Centre on the 31st of May, 2018. All right. Um, good evening. Uh, my name's Nick Bisley, uh, and I'm the Head of Humanities and Social Sciences at La Trobe University, uh, and I'm La Trobe Asia's first alum, I think. Uh, so if you're not aware, I used to be in charge of La Trobe Asia, uh, which is a job I miss greatly, I must say. Um, before we begin uh, this event, which is a joint La Trobe Asia Australia, uh, yeah, Australia India Institute uh, presentation, I'd like to first acknowledge uh, the traditional owners of the lands on which we meet, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and pay respects on behalf of La Trobe University and the University of Melbourne to, our, to elders past, present, and future. Uh, this evening, uh, we're here to celebrate the publication of a a book that is, in many respects, emblematic of what uh, AII and La Trobe Asia are trying to do. That's to say, to promote first-rate scholarship on and about Asia, to promote work that prompts and encourages Australian debate, discussion and engagement with ideas, peoples and societies in Asia, uh, but also to do it in a way that's accessible, that links uh, high-quality scholarship with public debate and public policy issues. Uh, in many respects, the book fulfills all of our possible KPIs. Um, more importantly, the book is very much um, a, a, a sort of a, a representation of a Latrobe AII collaboration. Both uh, Robin Jeffrey is uh, on the advisory board of Latrobe Asia, uh, Asi Doran's an alum of Latrobe University, uh, and the book very much represents the kind of scholarship that our two institutions really uh, are, are, exist to promote and support. Uh, so this is a great pleasure for both institutions and Craig will um, close things off this evening to, to sort of round out or bookend the, two inst the, the, the institutional collaboration. Uh, my job is simple from here. Uh, it's, it is to introduce the, the moderator for this evening's discussion, another person who is um, a, a testimony to what it is that La Trobe University and uh, AII is trying to do, that's to say link the public debate, public scholarship, uh, public debate and high-quality scholarship and, and research. Uh, Sally Warhoft is uh, a woman of many hats. Uh, she's a broadcaster, a publisher, uh, a scholar, um, a sadly unsuccessful candidate. Yeah, a failed to... political candidate <laughs> now. No, yeah. Unsuccessful in her first attempt at public office, but we'll be back. Uh, and most importantly, is an alum of La Trobe University with a PhD in anthropology um, from the institution so I was simply, all that remains for me is to hand you over to Sally, who will lead tonight's discussion. So, thank, thank you, you Nick. <laughs> and welcome, everybody, to this really uh, special occasion. It is such a thrill to be here. I should say Robin Jeffrey was also my PhD supervisor, so it doesn't get more special than that for me. Uh, this 
wonderful book, Waste of a Nation, Garbage and Growth in India. Uh, in my working life, boy, do I read a lot of rubbish. <laughs> and uh, this book is really, um, it is the best quality rubbish uh, out there. It is a really uh, important uh, and uh, timely book. Let me introduce uh, our wonderful distinguished panel tonight to talk about it. Uh, Assi Doran is of course the co-author uh, of this book. He's Associate Professor in Anthropology at the College of Asia and the Pacific at the ANU. Uh, his books include Life on the Ganga, which was based on his field work in Varanasi, and the great Indian phone book with his co-conspirator, Robin, as well. Uh, Dolly Kikotten is a lecturer uh, at the School of Social and Political Sciences at Melbourne University, and her research and extensive publications are focused on issues including political economy, development and gender relations in northeast India, particularly in Nagaland. Dolly has previously worked as a human rights lawyer and a community organiser in India before she got her PhD from Stanford University. And Robin Jeffrey is Emeritus Professor of Politics at La Trobe University and a visiting professor at the National University of Singapore. He is, of course, the author of many, many books. Now, I'm not going to uh, list them all, just a couple of my personal favourites. Uh, Politics, Women and Wellbeing, uh, How Kerala Became a Model, and India's Newspaper Revolution. So there's some very shortened CVs from each of our wonderful guests. Please give them another welcome. <laughs> so... Uh, Robin and uh, Asi, just to start with you both first, congratulations uh, again. Um, you've made a seamless transition as co-authors. This is a really unusual thing, I think, for uh, two people to write more than one book together. <laughs> uh, unusual to write one. Uh, and um, the, the first one on the mobile phones, I remember... Uh, thinking I could not tell your writing apart and I know both of your writing as individuals and it's even more true uh, with this book. You've made this seamless uh, transition from mobile phones to rubbish um, but you do it so beautifully in the very opening the story is told us here about how you came to think about writing this book um, connected with the mobile phones so tell us a little bit about, about that. Yeah, well, it was basically we were writing about the mobile phones and we realized that in India, many people have a, a, are very poor and they have a limited purchasing power. And so unlike what we do here is we, the average lifespan of a mobile phone is about 13, 14 months and then we shelve it. Usually we don't throw it identity theft. And, um, but in India, people don't have that luxury, so they extend the life of the mobile phone. And in doing so, they repair it and they tweak it, a bit like barbers. They massage it, they insert <laughs> different um, uh, photos and screensavers of gods and wrestling and religious songs. And it all happens in these informal markets. And within these informal markets, the ones, the mobile phones that have died, have a kind of an afterlife. 
And when I was working in those gray markets in different areas, I realized that uh, with the repairmen, they were shelving all these dead mobile phones and someone was coming with a bag and picking them up. And uh, as an inquisitive uh, uh, person, an anthropologist, I was wanting to know where, where do these mobiles go? And then I realized that they actually go, they are then shipped off to uh, different places and in the slums they're pulverized and the, the, the material extracted from them, the gold, the silver, the plastics and copper, they, they, they have value. And that's, that's where I started thinking about rubbish and initially electronic waste. And that's how it came to be. And I, I went to Robin and I said, listen, there's, there's a big story here. We need to, to, to uncover this. And uh, he said, wait, I have to get uh, approval first to, to write another book <laughs> from my better half. And uh, we, we slowly, slowly uh, uh, convinced her. Ne never got the approval. It's all been done under duress. The, uh, the, uh, my version of that story yeah. is much more dramatic. Yeah, good. It's the untrue yeah. one. But, yeah. No, he came back in a, an absolute sweat from seeing some of the processes that were going on in the remaking of these mobile phones and extracting the bits from them. And he was so sort of shocked. He came in and sort of shook me by the lapels if I'd been wearing a jacket, but I wasn't, and uh, said, we've got to do a book about garbage. And I would have said, I'm sure, no, I don't want to do a book about garbage, but he kind of talked me into it. Anthropologists are terrible that way, Sally. They're <laughs> they are. really, We're really bad. bad. bad they get news. bees in their bonnets, yeah, yeah. and then they just won't let them go. I know. We you know about go that, away. don't you? Mm, yeah. yeah. Mm. <laughs> Dolly, uh, you've uh, obviously read the book and uh, told us that you've written down some reflections on it. And um, I thought we should probably get those up front so that, uh, um, you know, we don't get any nasty surprises as we <laughs> go along. Um, you, you asked if you could read them out. Pull the mic a little closer. Right. Thank you so much. So I think keeping track of time, I'll start right away. Um, so I'm the third speaker, and I'll tell you how it started. I'll tell you the secret right now. So the <laughs> idea about writing this book, Waste of Nation, Garbage and Growth in India, began with a taxi ride across northeast Delhi in 2012. This book is a testament about a meaningful collaboration between a card-carrying anthropologist and a distinguished historian whose contribution ranges from contemporary history, politics, and media in India. The book begins by asking what is why is India so filthy and highlights our understanding about waste and how it is grounded in social relations and everyday fears. Studying waste and garbage is an interdisciplinary field today in the social sciences. Waste of nation, garbage and growth in India informs us that human waste categorized as garbage includes many dimensions such as environmental sustainability, governance, labor standards, infrastructure, material culture and consumption. Doron and Jeffrey weaves the story of garbage and waste in seven wonderful chapters, from historical details about Florence Nightingale's devastating remark about the state of sanitation in colonial India, cholera episodes, bubonic plagues, to Gandhi's distaste about Western medicine and urban life. The book captures how the priority for Indian nationalists during British colonial period was not about improving towns and cities, but focus on perfecting the ideal romantic village. Urban India received little attention in the first 20 years of India's independence after 1947 because the country was overwhelmingly rural. The national government was focused on industrial development and from the late 60s on agriculture and ways to increase the production of food grains. 
During this period, towns and cities grew slowly and what most households generated as garbage was biodegradable waste. If anything grew during this period, it was the population of India. With an increase in population, there was an increase in the volume of waste, especially of excrement of humans and animals. But it is only in 1974 that the word urban development appears in the five-year plan of India. And in 1985, 10 years later, the Ministry of Urban Development created. Between 1951 and 61, 80% of the population lived in villages, but in 2001, 286 million people lived in urban hubs, like towns and cities across India. With the growth of population, the economic liberalization of Indian economy, mobility, and new consumer consciousness, the waste of the Indian nation began to pile up. Therefore, as India's economy grew, its limitations to handle waste also became increasingly visible. As late as 2009, there were only 22 plants in the entire country accredited to handle hazardous waste, and out of these, seven of these plants were solely in the state of Gujarat in western India. Besides bodily waste like urine and feces, the book focuses on automobiles, industrial waste, all ships, all the way to toothpaste tubes, batteries, and hair. The book informs us about the decrepit system of waste management, new efforts by engineers and NGOs to address the problem of garbage collection. Across metropolitan hubs, starting from the state of Kerala in South India, all the way to Delhi, the nation's capital, to imposing cities like Chennai and Pune, and to India's very own Silicon Valley, the tech city of Bengaluru. Local governments, citizens, professionals, handlers, recyclers, and facilitators struggle to cope with waste. While India, like many other countries around the world, have had to deal with growing volumes of waste, there is something very distinct about India's relationship with waste, this book tells us. The scale and volume of waste, garbage, rubbish, refuse sewage, and its steady growth, as the book highlights, poses a serious challenge to India today. Besides the volume of waste and the density of human population that outgrows China, India's relationship with waste is extraordinary because it is intimately tied to the caste system. There is no chapter in this book that does not touch upon the topic of caste, experiences of poverty, humiliation, and stigma. In the introduction, Doran, Doran and Jeffrey invokes the image of Hindu pilgrims bathing in the polluted Ganges in the holy city of Varanasi and rinsing their mouth beside outlets of untreated sewage water. They go on to show how caste Hindu practices of purity and pollution informs everyday practices of hygiene in the country. What is profound about this book is this. It proves in seven illuminating and sharp chapters how India's sanitary infrastructure continues to rely on an enduring form of caste inequality and oppression. It also shows how the dominant workforce to keep India clean is highly gendered. Although untouchability was officially declared illegal in 1950, the year India became a republic, 190 million people are born into this group and constitute to be stigmatized as polluting bodies. It is the Dalits, or so-called untouchables, who form a disproportionate number of India's poorest people today that constitute the largest number of people who perform the most dangerous and unpleasant task of dealing with waste and garbage in India. 
Elaborating this disturbing concept of caste practice and waste in India, Doran and Jeffrey write, and I quote in my conclusion, in the languages of North India, they, referring to Dalits, are sometimes called the offensive name of achut, not to be touched, not touchable. That some human beings are judged to be tainted and believed to transmit pollution merely by touch complicates India's confrontation with growing volumes of thrown away things. It hinders cooperation and fosters feelings that remove nauseous material is someone else's job, even by the virtue of birth. Today, the caste purity is maintained and reinforced by having those at the bottom, low caste and untouchables, to perform unclean tasks. Is there any hope about this book? I'm not even going to touch on the second half of this book, because for Doran and Jeffrey, they just don't leave it at a very lazy work of, I think, academics deconstructing. They give us very valuable systems of how to address this problem through technology, through unions, by emphasizing work. And there is a term that appears time and again, which I'm very drawn towards, but I'll leave it to the authors to draw on this, and, I, and it's a question that I pose to them, about dignity and why dignity is so important in this, actually, to politicize the very work of waste and garbage in contemporary India. Thank you for giving me this time. Thanks, Dolly. Mm. Um, it's a fantastic uh, summary, uh, and we'll start um, picking it now. <laughs> uh, perhaps starting, I think, with the you know broad question of what is it? Um, I mean, every country has a relationship with waste. Every human being has a relationship with waste. What is it um, that is uniquely Indian that's most important, Robin? Well, I think uh, Dolly's touched on one element, and that, that is caste. Caste introduces an element that isn't present. In the Burakumin in Japan would perhaps be approaching the complexity of discrimination that we see in, uh, still surviving in India. Uh, so caste is one element, the social-cultural element. And the other uh, today is the sheer density of India's population. Uh, on the wallpaper in the PowerPoint that we had running before we began, there was a map with a China overlay on an Indian map. And of course, China is, I think, two and a half times larger than India. Indian population density is almost two and a half times greater than China's. So. As India begins to urbanize increasingly, as it has in the last 20 years, and become increasingly middle class and consumerist, everything that goes with those processes is multiplied, and there's less and less place to actually put it. So it, it's not just a question, as we have in Australia, of telling the 10-ton compacting trucks to drive another 50 miles up the road and dump it in a field. Mm. There aren't any fields. We're running out of fields. So India has a, a magnitude and density problem, I think, that is unique in the world today. And I think what, what else is really interesting is that we tend to assume that it's only the, the middle classes that consume <laughs> and dispose and throw away, as India is, is coming of age, as it were. But it's also a lot of those people who are poor and landless and who have to migrate. They rely on muggy noodles, on packets of shampoo, they don't have gardens uh, to grow their foods, and they're constantly consuming as well and disposing. But unlike the middle classes who are very much invested in a clean public spaces because they want to show India to the world, these people are oppressed. These people don't feel that this is their space, 
and they're seen as actual, almost a metaphor of rubbish. And we can see it in other places in the world. I mean, refugees, when you see them in the TV, and, uh, and I don't know, other, other communities that suffer the kind of, the, the, the waste pyramid that chokes them. And they're, they're also charged with cleaning up India because by virtue of their birth. And when you clean up a place ritually, that means the people who are pure remain pure, right? You, you're the receptacle of pollution, as it were, as an untouchable or as a poor Muslim or as a landless laborer. Mm. It's um, such a specific relationship in India between, or, or tension between the ideas of ritual purity up against a sort of scientific uh, uh, sense of of what to do to, to fix some of these problems. Is there a um, is there is there somewhere where that um, can meet? Uh, or is it always going to be one winning over the other? I think that's one of the dilemmas. I think there'll be a clean India. If a cleaner India is to be achieved and sustained, it will also be an India in which the, some of these ideas and practices of caste uh, are undermined. I think the two go hand in hand. A clean India and an undermining of caste are joined. But, I mean, India has advantages too. And I know Dolly's been in the NGO civic action groups. And that seems to me one of the unusual things about India, that there are these thousands of local groups that do remarkable work and are still in India allowed to exist, unlike China and many other places. I don't know. That's a Dolly, tell us about your work in, uh, in the north of India and what rang true to you from, from, from the book? <laughs> I lived through the garbage, so I was smiling and I was thinking, so I studied in Delhi, I lived in Delhi for seven years, so the, so, <clears throat> show me, do you know where Delhi University is, people? Like, show me hands, come on, like, let's relax, let's chill, okay. I studied in DU, and if you, if you live in, nord, in nord, northern part of Delhi, the Gandanala, which is literally translated as the dirty drain, is part of your life, right? So I lived in one of the ghettos in the 90s. I couldn't afford any other place. And so it is such an integral part. If you grew up in India, in looking at garbage, uh, looking at waste, uh, finding ways how to dispose, dispose it of. But these are not only material things. As the book says, you form relations with it. Uh, for example, every day when I would go to class, my relation with the Gandanala then became not a dirty drain, but became a site of, um, uh, became a space, which is very important. So when you would uh, stop a rickshaw bhaiya, the conversation would be, kispar ke gandanala, ispar ya uspar, right? Are you on this side of the dirty drain or that side of the dirty drain? So the drain becomes a landmark. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, so not to look at social relations and dirt as something that's outside of oneself, but as part of our life and how we constantly uh, clean and how we constantly manage waste. Um, the other part that I also saw, since you asked a very personal question, is that how caste is so much built into the notions of purity is, is also there's an excess and a surplus of labor, right? So if you're middle class in India, a servant is always doing your work. So the first thing a child is told is that your work is to study and become someone, not to clean. Right, it's it's the it's the it's the kancha, a derogatory word for a servant in India, which is uh, which is a little brother in Nepali, um, or or it is really that that servant who would come and who would do the cleaning, cooking. If you're 
raised as a middle class in an urban area with surplus labor. Your job is to study and become a high techie and go to Silicon Valley in California, not to learn how to clean your waste and how to clean a toilet. Right. So that's quite a contradiction, in fact. Um, growing up, really, as an undergraduate kid in, in India's capital, I would see very, very hardworking students from all parts of India who would refuse to touch a mop. And they would literally clean the house with their feet. And so this is very, very ingrained. And that's why when I was reading this book, it did make a lot of sense. The, the reason that I don't go into the second part of the book is also strategic, because I want the audience to be able to buy and read why technology is so important so that both Doran and Jeffrey can make some money out of it. But I think the... the <laughs> But I think the, the, the answer is in technology and in unionizing and in recognizing work as work and as a political project for the country to proceed. Well, let's talk a, a bit about the political project of the Prime Minister Modi, who I think has set, is it the 9th of October, is that Gandhi's? Second, second, second of October. Of October. Second of October. Uh, next year is the 150th anniversary of uh, Gandhi's birth. Uh, as the date that he set four years ago uh, for a clean India and a, a, a decent toilet to be available for every uh, Indian. Um, how is this going uh, and your reflections on it? Yeah, I think that on the face of it, I think this Watch Bharat campaign or the Clean India uh, campaign that Modi uh, inaugurated and is very much behind it and uh, putting a lot of uh, effort and a lot of big money behind it from companies and uh, from the diaspora. Again, people want to see India clean. They want to see the rivers clean. They want to see their public spaces clean. And so it's, it's very much been everywhere. Everyone is talking about Swatch Bharat. And he put it, he put it on the agenda, and that's a good thing. The, of course, the problem with these top-down approaches is that they're often target-driven. And officials and lo uh, locals and civic bodies are all trying to tick boxes and say, okay, this, this is a new open-defecation-free zone. This village has achieved cleanliness. And what happens is that those people that don't have the infrastructure, they, cannot, they don't have access to toilets, clean water, they don't have uh, rubbish bins or places where they can dispose things. They're seen then as themselves the rubbish, and so they're criminalized. And we've had already several instances that uh, people who go and defecate in the open and relieve themselves, they're being uh, photographed by officials, sometimes beaten up, and all because they, they, they don't have access to these places. So I think it needs to be complemented by a much more grounded or on-the-ground approach that would allow or enable certain people to access these facilities. Um, has Modi ever said anything about the cultural caste, uh, those sorts of issues in relation to his goals? Not, not that I'm aware of. I mean, this is something we've been writing a little bit about in the last couple of weeks, that the, the caste element is missing, the, the, the kind of outright... Um, attack on on the prejudices that underline so much bad waste behavior uh, is not there. But that's part of the problem, I think, with the Swatch Bharat campaign, the Clean India campaign overall, 
that uh, not enough of the budget, and it is a consider it's a budget of tens of millions, hundreds of millions of dollars over, over the five years, but not enough of that has gone into the uh, educational side and the reinforcement side. Demonstration, education, reinforcement. Where these programs of civic cleanliness seem to have worked in places in Africa, for example, and even in Eastern Europe, they've involved constant reiteration by officials, distinguished people coming to towns, coming to villages, and demonstrating how uh, a two-pit toilet is cleaned. There's nothing like seeing the block development officer getting down with a shovel, cleaning out the benign material in, the, uh, in a matured two-pit toilet, but uh, that's not seen very often. It's that kind of reinforcement, I think, that uh, has been lacking, and that's been one of the problems with, with the program. Um, it, when you get into the detail of everything that you look at, whether it's toothbrushes or toilets, uh, it is when you start to really understand the magnitude. I mean, the, the search for the ideal toilet uh, for a country like India, which you write extensively about in this book, um, I mean, I, I just kept reading it and thinking, you know, surely the greatest minds... On Earth, you know, the, the, of, of, uh, so t t take us through just this one particular um, idea of, of, of why it's so difficult uh, for an ideal toilet for India's particular uh, uh, circumstances, cultural, economic, but also uh, not having enough water, for well, example. That, that's, that's the example that we give in the book. I mean... It's very nice to plonk toilets in places, but nobody is using them. And uh, this has also a dimension of gender here. So, for instance, um, it's a great modern project to say, as Modi, the Prime Minister of India, says, we are going to take care of our daughters that don't have toilets. And, and it's true. Many of these girls cannot uh, go to school because they get urinary tract infections or they can't uh, use those uh, filthy toilets or don't have access to toilets, and that marginalizes them, marginalizes them even further. But... When you put a toilet in the household, you have to understand that these households are grounded in social relations. And one of the things that we found out is that many, many women don't want those toilets in their household. For one, that means they have to go and fetch more. They have to go and do rounds for, for water from the river more. Uh, on, the other, on the other hand, also, some women welcome the respite to go to the bushes and, and, and gossip with other women uh, outside the supervision of the mother-in-law. And um, th that's, that's their space to, um, to converse a lot of times. So it's, it's also a question of understanding the on-the-ground realities and alongside with this kind of education. In, in some instances, there were toilets that we visited and they were under lock. Or in, some people were sleeping in these toilets and you know, they, were, they had a, a mattress in there or storage spaces. So it's not a given that if you're... If, if, if a toilet is built in your house, even if it's subsidized, even if it's given, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing godly, just like there's nothing godly about a mobile phone. You, you, you know, these things are, uh, need to be educated and inducted into. In fact, one of the things you say is that it needs to be 
as cool as the mobile phone, as fitting an idea to get that kind of coverage. I mean, when we think of the evolution of the bathroom, as North Americans like to say, I need to go to the bathroom. Um, they don't mean the bathroom, no. of course. But when you go to the bathroom in a North American home, you know, they're lavish, they're palaces. You could sort of spend a weekend just in the bathroom uh, because they're heated and they have carpets and all nice hot bath, uh, shower dripping down on you. Well, that's something that, that's come only in the last hundred years, and it had to be built by not necessarily good processes, the processes of capitalism constantly trying to convince people that there was something else they needed. I need a blue bathtub. That white bathtub is so awful. I need four bathrooms. Well, four, yes, mm. and the more bathrooms, the better. Mm. So that kind of process has gone on in the West uh, along with the growth of consumer-driven capitalism, that, that glamorizing of the bathroom. But what's wanted is a functional, clean space. But as Asi says, you need water to run a sewage system. I don't think India will ever be sewered because it's simply not possible. That's why the, the perfect toilet still needs to be invented. And it's one thing to dig a, a, a pit toilet, but uh, at some stage, the contents have to go somewhere and have to be treated or contained. And that's where the difficulty comes in, in terms of sewage treatment plants. There, if you go to an Australian sewage treatment plant, you'll see that it takes up a, an awful lot of space. Um, 90, 90 hectares for some of these big sewage treatment plants around the city of Melbourne and Sydney. So they take up space. They use a lot of electricity to keep the processes going. Um, and consequently, to imagine that happening adequately for cities like Bombay or Calcutta is very, very hard. So the Gates Foundation are on the job. They're, they're financing various uh, programs around the world looking for the perfect toilet in various chemical ways. But nobody's got it yet. And it's, of course, it's very politically sensitive. When I was uh, going around with one of the uh, officials in Mumbai, uh, to various places to see the sewage treatment plants and the, the, the sewage itself. And I asked him, uh, we looked at the hills and we looked at the slums, and I said, Is there any, are there any plans to sewer these, these places? And he said to me, are you crazy? Do you want to have a riot here? How can we raise this place and, and, uh, and put sewage pipes in them? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, India is, it's, the idea that India is rural is, is no longer there. I mean, India is an urbanizing, rapidly urbanizing place, and you need to deal with, these, with this uh, new situation. Um, Dolly, uh, as he touched on uh, some of the gender issues just before in, in talking about women's, um, you know, wanting to get out of the house, all the school children, girls not continuing on at school, urinary tract infections for women who actually won't drink water during the day so they don't have to go to the toilet. Um, what are the other um, issues of, of gender that stood out to you in the book, particularly among um, the workers in waste, the people who are actually dealing with waste? So as the book profoundly shows us how it's really the, the lower caste who do this work of collecting waste, lower caste as we see, even I think both the authors show that the, the, the category of Dalit is not homogeneous. They're middle class. I think the, the, the last president of India was a Dalit, an educated person, They're very, very politically mobilized if you look at it. But looking at that community, it's also highly gendered. It's women folk who would do all the work of cleaning the streets and uh, collecting night soil, although that's uh, 
banned. It continues. The, the, the project continues. Um, and so it was quite new for me as well as I read the book to look at the de gender division of um, collecting waste and rubbish. And I think this is something that also remind, reminded me of my work in extraction, how even, even in terms of extraction, whether it's palm oil extraction or tea plantation, it's amazing how work as such, and this is what relates, garbage not as something that's, you know, uh, Dalits at a, as a category uh, collecting waste, but as workers, and I want to make it more political as such, that if we look at extraction of plantations, whether it's in Indonesia or Assam tea, or in terms of looking at garbage through the eyes of workers, it's extremely gendered in a way that women and girls fall within the most vulnerable categories of the work they do, whether it's, it's in terms of sexual assault, whether in, it, it's in terms of falling within the very, very oppressive patriarchal norms. There are girls, young women, who say in the book, after they got married, they never used to collect waste as unmarried women, but after getting into their husband's house, it was the mother-in-law who would first give them the broom and the basket to go, go and collect and do, to go and clean the streets. So it's also really the induction that we need to understand in terms of the complexity of gender, and that's why I think, once again, I would like to reinforce the word work and unionizing and how cooperatives forming in India right now are so important uh, to be, in a way, made visible through our work. Um, we, we will turn to, um, despite your desire for it to be a complete surprise, the second half, uh, we will talk about some of the possible um, uh, roads uh, for India, India shortly. But I, w I wanted to touch on another important tradition in, in India of, um, of frugality and reuse uh, and trading and so on and, um, about how that can possibly be, how it's used now already. And I mean, the great example I thought in the book was um, the human hair waste. It's just a, the most remarkable story about, I mean, the, the, uh, anything you might see on the uh, streets or, or bins in India, you, you're clearly not going to find a human hair because there are, it's covered. Uh, tell us a bit about that, that, uh, that industry and the, the, the different, as one example of the many in the book, of the different levels of uh, recycling, finding, reusing. Yeah, well, the, when I was uh, walking around with some of these uh, waste pickers in India, I was very much sensitive to the fact that those who deal with waste are subject to an inventory of, of risks, whether it's prejudice, whether it's economic uh, uh, loss or dispossession, and whether it's a disfiguration or, uh, or kind of hazards, because they pick up waste that's jagged, that's, that's sharp, that's uh, on the streets, and there's a hierarchy of different dumps, and who can go to those dumps, so there's, a, there's very much a variation. And um, I was walking around with these uh, young, young men um, for the day, and uh, the, towards, towards uh, lunchtime, they unpacked their gunny, uh, gunny sacks uh, from the waist, and I saw that they've got plastics, of course, and, uh, and paper, and glass, and cassette tapes, and henna bottles, and shoes, and everything. And then I was, I was thinking that they're picking up this kind of black 
strands. And I was asking them, what's this? Wrapped around, wrangled around the waist. That they, and they, they showed me that it's hair that's accumulated. They picked up from the gutters or it, it was stranded in some places and they put it in a little separate box. And I was, I was kind of thinking about it. I knew about the temple hair in India, which is a huge industry, multi-million industry where Indian hair is very good hair. The, the, they don't shampoo it uh, with the, uh, lots of chemicals. They don't bleach it. The, it it's considered very top-quality hair. But I never thought about waste hair. And then I asked them, what do you do with all this? And they said, well, we take it to the Bengali trader just in the other slum. And then once we, after we wash it and accumulate it, we, um, we sell it, half a kilo or a kilo. And uh, I went into the slum, and the whole slum was specializing in hair. And, 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 and that hair was then sold off to this... Um, a wholesaler who cleaned it further, refined it. There was a kacha hair and pakka hair, a, a raw and a cooked hair, as it were. Uh, mine, mine is cooked hair, you know, all, all the people's <laughs> hair. It's already cooked. It's not as valuable. And, and of course, the, the raw hair, the brushings that they get from, uh, from uh, women's hair is, is, is much more valuable. And I asked him what happens with it, and he, and he says he, he moves it on. He packed it in these big sacks and, and stitched it and put it on the train to uh, Delhi. And um, I started tracing the hair trade and, and met all these uh, mid-level uh, hair wholesalers that deal with waste hair until at one point I heard from one of those uh, wholesalers, he said, yes, there is one guy, the king of hair, but you'll never, you'll never meet him. Uh, but I'll give you his phone number and uh, don't tell him, that, don't, don't say that it's, uh, it's me. And uh, I called him uh, and... Uh, I spoke in, uh, in Hindi and I, I said to him that I'm interested in hair and I'm working on, as an anthropologist. He, he obviously didn't understand because I think he thought I wanted to buy hair. And he said, um, okay, I'll send someone to pick you up. And uh, suddenly a Mercedes came to my uh, guest house and I visited his factory. And that's a, a classic Fordian kind of capitalist factory where they refine the hair, they clean it, they weigh it, they measure it, they... Uh, packet and uh, I, I had an interview with him and he said he exports 60,000 kilos of hair kilos. 60 tons of a month a month to overseas to Africa and to China now this is made for wigs for the entertainment business or and otherwise and then I asked him so I see in your factory you employ about 60 70 people how many how many people do you employ uh, throughout the week? And he says, oh, I've got hundreds of thousands of people I employ. What do you mean hundreds of thousands? He says, all those people that you see, all those waste pickers, that hair is channeled through different various uh, uh, pathways into my factory. And, and, and that's, again, how, how, does how, does, how do you extract value from waste? There's a waste chain. And the paradox is that waste gains value... Uh, the more it goes up the chain, but the people that collect it, they're stranded down there. Mm. And that's, that's the kind of tension that you see, and, the, and that's the thing that we found in all sorts of ways. The, uh, yeah, I think uh, the, the chain that Asi's describing is the Kabari chain that I think everyone who's lived in India in the last, even in the last 20 years, has a Kabari story. And certainly anybody over... 30 has a Kabari story about the Kabariwala comes round, used to come where I live first uh, on a Sunday, and you'd hear him coming down the street. He'd be on his bicycle with a couple of big bags on each side of the bike, and he'd be shouting, Kabari, Kabari, I'm coming, I'm coming. 
And uh, the idea was you, if you had newspaper or, or glass bottles or even broken crockery and utensils, you could talk to the Kabari and do a deal with him. And everyone, I think, has a story of an auntie or a grandmother who loved the sort of fortnightly haggle with the Kabari. Well, you worked out whether this pile of papers was worth two rupees or five rupees, and eventually decided it was worth three and a half rupees, that kind of a discussion. But it might take half an hour to conclude. But the, uh, the chain was great fun, but these links are still there. Mm. And I think there will be Kabaris around India who have been able to profit uh, from the, the increased opportunities that some modern technologies have brought. And plastic, of course, has been a wonderful thing for the Kabari business at certain times. You, you, you also, though, demonstrate the vulnerabilities in that. So for the, the guy with the Mercedes, it's in the, the stock prices. So you tell a great story about the, a particular Jewish community in New York who suddenly realise that this hair is coming from everywhere and decide to stop buying the wigs made out of this particular Indian hair because of a clash with their own religious uh, ideas of purity and that affects the, the price. But then you've got programs, not specifically with hair, but where you know the government will introduce something and the consequences um, down the chain are, uh, are just unknown uh, for the people that are, that are implementing them. Waste is extremely price sensitive. Uh, the, the value of plastics, min, uh, metals and so on. Copper, for example, is a very valuable waste product and uh, has been going to China from America for the last 30 years. The containers that come with manufactured goods to Los Angeles and San Francisco have been going back to China with things like Christmas tree wires, uh, where the plastic coating is stripped off and the copper is immensely valuable. The fact that China has now got a nas this national sword policy that they're going to reject this kind of material means that something has to happen with it. What it may do is increase the value of that material in the United States or in Australia where it's generated. The, the, one of the key early books that came out about 25 years ago on waste and garbage was called Rubbish, and it came out of the University of Arizona's Garbage Archaeology Project, where they were doing core samples of American dumps, and they found all sorts of great things, of course, as they do core samples, and <clears throat> the character, characteristic of a dump. But the, one of the kind of one-sentence one points they make is, waste gets collected when somebody makes a buck. And there has to be a profit incentive. There has to be some sort of incentive in the collection and processing of waste if it's to be dealt with in a recycling way or in, even if it's be, to be dealt with in a way that makes it benign. And that's one of the challenges we face in Australia as well as, uh, as, well as in India. Um, I've, I've just, you know, learned more than I ever thought I would about the city of Melbourne uh, <laughs> at the council, local government level. One of the things I... I found out was that the, the, the most common issue at every public forum I went to, rubbish. It's obsessed about rubbish in this city, uh, which I didn't really realise, but I hadn't um, thought about it from the point of view of somebody who lives in the inner, you know, laneways of the city. It turns out our rubbish collection in Melbourne is just remarkably inefficient. It's just incredible. So that you'll have a different truck every middle of the night coming down your laneway and so on. But, of course, it's the local government 
um, that, that it's, it's local government's job, it's the primary job. Um, you write a lot about the role local government council need to play in India if it's to, 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 to find a solution. Dolly, perhaps this is something you could speak to um, in relationship between that level of government um, but also with, say, NGOs uh, as well. What, what are the relationships going to have to be? This is such an amazing question because it reminds me of the book and in Chennai, the, the story of that, I think, of, of a locality that, that the book tells us is particularly um, how municipal councils focusing on waste in urban India is quite new. So for the first time, there's an amazing story how in one of the localities in Chennai when uh, the first municipal election takes place, I, I think towards the late 1990s, um, and there is a woman who's elected. She really doesn't know her mandate that collecting waste and rubbish should be a priority. There's a fight, there's a conflict, and it's NGOs who come in to, to manage that. Um, when it comes to local government, I'll just tell you about my experience. As an anthropologist, I'm currently writing a book on Dimapur, and I bet no one knows where is Dimapur. I'm so impressed. Oh my gosh, you do? All right, anyway. All right, I see two hands. So it's, it's around conflict cities. I work on a city. I, it's one of the most militarized cities in South Asia, and talk about local governments. There is no local government. Uh, what was fascinating to see, how, it's a city of 400,000 people. And when I was looking at spaces, urban spaces, and how people manage, the city center is literally, in my field site, falling apart. Because there has been no municipal election since the 1990s. And last year, it was in India's national papers all around. I think even um, The Guardian covered it. Because a municipal election focused on garbage collection, on, on, on cleaning up the streets, became an issue of customary law, that women are not supposed to contest elections according to traditional laws. So local elections, municipal government is really, I think, uh, mixed up with social relations of power, of, um, how can I say, of, of local governance, and especially in the areas where, where I was working uh, to do with traditional structures. Something that I found which I uh, feel is important to talk about is the notion of, it's not in this book, but I feel that we can start a conversation about community infrastructure. Right? So in, in places where local governance and local governments might be quite um, fragmented, it's people all, always coming together. Because like I said, as an anthropologist, I don't see waste as something that's outside of us. Every day, whether I'm in Melbourne or whether I'm in Nagaland, Assam, or Delhi, the first thing I do when I'm in someone's house is to make sure that the places around are clean. So there's a very, very, I think, intimate connection between the human and waste and how we're constantly cleaning up. Um, and so... In the city where I work in Dimapur, it's communities who have come together. So as the city center is falling apart and crumbling, the localities, if you go around, are so clean. And what they have done during times of flood. So imagine it's a city where there no municipal elections have taken place in the last 15 to 20 years in India. Right. And so it says the localities, people have come with innovative ways of putting bamboo stilts where garbage is not on the ground, so the dogs and other animals can come and rummage it, but it's on a stilt. They've come up, they have collected money to actually come up with ways of disposing. Um, and so it's very, very impressive, and how waste is not seen as waste. I still have the habit of not being able to throw away plastic, so 
if you come to my kitchen, I have heaps of plastic bags from <laughs> holes and from Woolsford because <laughs> these are things you don't throw away. These are things that you, you reuse it. I think, and it's for a purpose and a reason that they should not be for free, right? I think there's something to be taken for granted if things are free. And it's to do with the market. It's to do with capitalism. It's amazing how the cheaper we make things, we produce things, the more waste it will create. Um, in my own experience as an anthropologist, my experience from California to go to Sweden, where I, where I worked previously, was really impressive. In, in California, if I had to go through 20 brands of washing powder, in Sweden, that wasn't the case. It was four, that's it, choose it. All good quality, expensive, affordable, non-allergic, but sustainable. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something to be said about it. So if you're thinking about waste, local government, I think oh, uh, the market needs to come in as an anthropologist. I truly feel the market needs to come in and we need to make the markets and the corporations much more accountable for what they're trying to feed us. I think uh, there's probably a lesson there on uh, attacks on returnable, returnable bottles. The South Australia model mm in that sense is a model for us all, that it's uh, an incentive to put the material back into the, the loop, if you like, of, recy of recycling. And uh, I hope the state of Victoria takes note of that at, uh, mm. in the not too distant future. But I think Australia's getting, as they say, a wake up call with the Chinese ban on the import of waste. And it's probably going to be a good wake up call because it's going to um, accelerate the development of small scale local technologies that can deal with some of these things. And that's already going on, I think, in uh, a number of uh, research centers and probably with a number of businesses. Uh, how can, if we're going to have to keep some of this material here, how can we begin to monetize it in some way and put it back into, the, into uh, a useful life? You uh, talk about wake-up calls in the book and in, in fact there's a term you use when you're talking about Surat and what happened mm. there in 94 that um, that you know, India in some ways needs a. What's the term you use, Robin? We talk. We coined a term, a binding crisis. A binding crisis. A crisis that a binding uh, crisis. makes the wealthy and the poor, briefly at least, or for some time afterwards, have a shared interest. The uh, uh, the, the classic one, of course, that we use in the book, and I think is well known, was the Great Stink of London in yep. 1858, when the Thames became an absolute sewer in June of 1858, and happily, it was right underneath Parliament. And B Buckingham Palace, too. Well, Buckingham yeah, Palace, yeah, too, yeah. yeah. And the parliamentarians couldn't go home until they finally voted to establish a sewage system for the City of London, which mm. came about within seven years. Mm. London had an immense sewage system that was opened by the Prince of Wales with great uh, eclat. The, the, it didn't solve everybody's problem because it took the sewage and pumped it farther down the Thames to be shot into the North Sea, and that wasn't such a good idea either, but... How significant were the improvements in Surat? Though? They seem to have been really dramatic. After uh, Surat was known as the dirtiest city in India prior to 1994, and the so-called bubonic plague scare of 94 really did frighten the socks and shoes off everybody. 
And Surat, within two years, was being described as one of the cleanest cities in India. And I don't think that was purely a kind of media-driven exercise. I think it was actually true. And Surat still holds its own very well. Surat's a great city of six, seven, eight million people. Um, and yet it's, it, it, it's a wealthy city. And it's, as cities go, it's, it's remarkably well looked after, I think. And it's, it scared the authorities. I was in India during that uh, scare mm. of bubonic plague, and uh, me and my uh, wife at the time couldn't leave India because all the airports were closed. So the authorities themselves suddenly realized something is going on here, and we have to deal with it in the most urgent manner. And it also reminds me of one of the characteristics of, of infrastructure is that we don't really notice it until it breaks down. So it's very easy for us piously to recycle on the curbside and put this here, the, the bottles here, and the glass here, and the paper here, and without knowing where it's going. And we even aestheticize it. Uh, we have all these parks on landfills, and it's beautiful, and we think that it's regenerating. But unless we face our own waste, it's unlikely that we're going to deal with it in a, in a coherent manner. That's what it seems to me. The... Uh Toothpaste tubes, Tetra Packs are classic. As far as I know, we have no way in Australia at the moment of dealing with Tetra Packs because of the complexity of the materials. Paper, plastic, and metal all in the same little pack. They were being shipped to China. Uh, in India, they're, they're very popular. There are small-scale factories that are making things, again, you might have seen on the wallpaper, making a very nice hardboard out of Tetra Packs, but it's still very small-scale. Uh, but these are the sorts of things that when there's a market, they can be increased in the volume that they produce. So uh, there's a lot of potential, I think, in a crisis. Mm. Uh, it's the old line, don't let a good crisis go to waste. And I think that's certainly true. Uh, for, for India to, to, to really look at solving some of these challenges and other places, well, but particularly for India... Um, you say that it's going to have to be a decentralised solution. Um, sketch for us what that might look like. I mean, India is so diverse, not only in terms of languages, but also in terms of terrains and geographies and uh, boundaries. And it's, 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 it's important to realise that those people who live along the River Ganges, for example, or Ganga as it's called, they have a living, breathing relationship with this river. They go, and it's not like the Yara here that we, we look at. They go and they, they bathe in it daily. They, they wash their clothes in it daily. They uh, uh, brush their teeth. And it's ritually a, a, a pure river. And b there is no way in which you can build uh, an infrastructure, like we said before, in terms of sewage. And people are going to still continue to use these rivers, these waters. And we need to somehow ensure that they're clean. So in decentralizing it, municipalities need to be empowered. They need to be resourced. There need to be regulation and enforcement. It, it, it's, whether it's the tanneries in North India or the pharmaceutical industry that spews effluents uh, into the rivers in uh, South India and pollutes those places and kills all the fields of the villagers. So there are some regulations, but there's no one to enforce them. There's no, there's no follow-up. And, and these things need to be done at the local decentralized level. The... Uh I think that's one of the, it illustrates this, one of the strong points of India, which are, as, as Dolly was saying, the local initiatives. The problem, of course, is the upscaling of those local initiatives. How do you take a lot of local uh, desirable stories and put them into something bigger and more widespread, make them, make them much more common? And 
there are, I think, remarkable stories of small towns in India that have done really very well at managing their waste, but managing their waste may not necessarily do very much for neighboring places or the towns down the river, farther down the river. These, it's the, integ the integral quality of the way in which pernicious waste uh, can move. For example, air pollution. If farmers are building fields or if people are burning waste randomly, that air pollution isn't just confined to their locality, it's covering a much, much wider area. So these are the things that are lacking and of course intergovernmental rivalries make a problem in this, in this way. This, the national capital territory of Delhi, which probably holds 18 million people, is, uh, is very, very small. It's a fraction the size of Tullamarine to Dandenong. Um, and it has nowhere to put its waste, but it, and it's also the recipient of burning going on in the states around it, uh, burning in, uh, agricultural, for agricultural purposes and also burning of waste. So the smoke haze that uh, besets Delhi very often in the winter isn't entirely within Delhi's control. So there's these jurisdictional problems as well as the problems with regulatory authorities. It reminds me that with jurisdiction, when uh, we were working in Kerala, found out that Kerala actually doesn't process its own waste because there's strong unions in Kerala and because there's no space. So what do they do with it? They offshore it to Tamil Nadu. So you start, walking, you start driving along the border and you get to these little towns in Tamil Nadu that are full of waste from Kerala. So the, the scale is also important to remember. We offshore it to third world countries and especially toxic and hazardous waste. But within India, you need to have some kind of mutual interest and processing facilities in place at the grounded level to, uh, to deal with that waste. Mm -hmm. Um, we are going to open this up to some questions, so uh, if you'd like to ask a question, just uh, put, I think we've even got some microphones mm. and terrific. Mm. Great. Um, yes, uh, India is increasingly being integrated into the capitalist world system, and to what extent is that process of integration creating the waste? And we hear a lot about uh, waste from first world countries like Australia going to China. Uh, but to what extent does that also contribute to the waste of India? Who wants to? Nasi and I were talking about this this afternoon. Uh, the answer, I think, is we really don't know just how much particularly toxic waste is getting into India. I see you were looking at the UN report. Yeah, I mean, the UN is trying to identify how much, for example, electronic waste is coming from uh, Western countries, uh, Europe, Australia, and, um, and uh, the US. And it, it's very difficult to identify and to track because they're doing it in stealth. So whether India can import certain types of waste but within, the, say, in cars, for example, in car panels, a lot of electronic waste is being smuggled. Or the fact that the, the regulations and the laws are different from different countries means that some toxic waste can enter India. And then, of course, it reaches the informal markets where it's cheap labor and people are subject to all these toxic and disfiguring uh, uh, chemicals. So it's, it's a very uh, uh, pernicious and it's a very difficult issue to deal with, especially now when we have all these bottlenecks as a result 
of China's ban on waste. Uh, nearly half of America, US waste goes to China. Similarly, a, a huge amount goes from uh, the European Union. Now that China is closing its doors and saying no more of that, it's surely going to be India who is going to be the recipient of that waste and countries in Africa, especially West Africa. And then the woman behind you. Um, talking about caste raises some sensitivities. And you're talking about um, crisis in garbage and things won't be solved unless things happen, um, you know, at the caste level. And I'm just wondering, as a couple of um, Western academics who are non-Hindus, um, whether you're getting any pushback, any attacks, um, how are people feeling about it? Listen, we've had that before. When we wrote the, the, uh, on the mobile phone book, uh, there was a, a newspaper article saying, why are these two white fellows telling us about the effects of the mobile phone on society, economy, and business in India? Now, waste of a nation is a far more sensitive issue. And yes, we are... Uh, so, well, in India, as Robin would yeah. say, many people agree that don't think the caste system exists. It was outlawed in 1950, right? Yeah, yeah it, it's something that... It, will be understandable, and I guess we, we're, we're expecting that. The Why would two foreigners write such a book? I guess uh, it's, uh, Asi used the expression this afternoon in talking, to amplify the discussion, to, uh, if you like, try to pull together what we see as the really complicated pieces of a jigsaw puzzle that go into the management of human cast-off things, try to pull those pieces of the jigsaw together, and in doing that, however imperfectly, to make others do it better, to provoke others to do it better. And if the book has that effect, well, that would be, uh, that would be a nice thing. Um, but we certainly, uh, I think what you're saying is absolutely right. I mean, it would, be, it would have been better if uh, I'd been uh, Robin Nyer, or as, as I was a have occasionally been called, but they, uh, it just would have been much more convincing, I think. They, uh... um, thank you for such an interesting panel. I can't wait to um, read the book now. I wanted to follow through on the comment that you made about how narratives of Hindu nationalism are mobilized in, 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 um, in talking about waste, about you know, how it should be clean for our mothers and sisters and daughters, etc., female or feminized bodies, in other words. I wanted to ask if either in your archival research or in your empirical research, did you come across references to cows in the same way? Because cows obviously consume enormous amounts of plastic and waste, and they are prolific in, in, um, in Indian roads, and of course they're also mobilized in narratives of Hindu nationalism. And following on from that, com uh, from that question, I also wanted to ask if the political economy of waste, you noted that it was gendered, you noticed, noted that it was um, casteized uh, and racialized or communalized, but what about the interspecies relationships between humans and non-humans that are also enacted and embodied in very intimate and interpersonal ways in India? I'll, I'll answer the last one first. I mean, that's part of the inventory of risk that I was talking about, that interspecies. When you go to a waste, whether it's Deona or a, a land, landfill in Mumbai or even small open dumps in, uh, in Varanasi or in, in, uh, in South India, they're not, they're, it's not only children who are foraging over and scavengers, there's pigs, there's monkeys, there's uh, vermins, uh, there's lots of rats, and of course there are dogs, vicious dogs. Everybody is vying for that piece of waste. And of course these kids come up with big sticks and they're trying to assert their, uh, their dominance on the waste pile. 
Now, this is... Uh, uh, this has implications also for India in terms of the rabies issues, because in, 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 as a veterinarian told me at one point, is that uh, dogs are territorial. And, they, and once you remove the territories that they establish, the waste piles, that means they start roaming in packs, and they're much more dangerous. So, and, and, uh, so, so it, it, it cuts both ways in, in that sense. So it certainly is a, a very... Um, a very dangerous occupation, and that's part of the issue that we want to alert people to. The, uh, I think the other thing is that the, uh, the, cow, uh, the cattle and buffalo stock, particularly under the present government, are going to multiply because cow slaughter is now almost totally banned, or appears to be almost totally banned. That's going to create uh, difficulties in that there will be a lot more dung produced, a lot more methane produced, as the very large population of uh, cattle and buffaloes uh, grows even larger. So that's, going to, that's something that um, the uh, Clean India campaign, Swatch Bharat, is going to have to deal with. It can be deal dealt with. Dung is very good for biomethanation, and you can, if you're running uh, biogas, uh, plants, you can make use of that, but somebody has to collect it, and we know it's not going to be the block development officer out there with a shovel uh, putting it into the back of a cart. It's going to be other people, and that's where the nexus just gets reinforced, I think. We... And of course, the sacred cow and the cow dung itself, there's a goddess that resides in the cow dung. The cow dung is collected uh, daily in Varanasi, and they're making, in the villages around, making these beautiful pyramids. It's used as a, uh, for uh, creating fire. As, and, um, but, but the cow dung is a purifying agent, right? Unlike other forms of waste. So waste itself is a diverse, and, and you need to, to think how it is culturally constituted and culturally viewed by different people. I wonder to what extent new developments, not just in the West, but say in water storage for rural people, what new technological developments in terms of um, septic type of tanks are finding their way into India? The, uh, that really takes us back to the search for the perfect perfect toilet, I think. Water purification is uh, a huge problem. It, I think now, Dolly, most middle-class homes have their own little uh, ultraviolet yes. water purifier on the, t on the tap. Um, but large-scale water purification is, is a huge issue. Singapore, of course, being Singapore, five million people, a fairly tightly controlled society, Singapore has its new water, which new water is simply recycled water, and Singapore water goes round and round through the human being out into the groundwater chain and back to the human being again in a bottle of new water. Um, India hasn't reached that level and I don't think the city of Cairns made that level either, did it, when it tried to recycle water? That was a disaster for the local government that tried to prosecute that idea. So, but the technologies vary a lot. There's a, a firm, uh, a, one company that we've been, or I've been following, and Asi's been having to follow because I've been following it, is um, called Fluence, which is uh, listed on the Australian Stock Exchange. And they uh, are claiming to have... Uh, 
perfected a system that in a, si a room about the size of where we're sitting now and with sufficient vertical tanks using membrane, they could uh, purify the water of 25,000 households um, in 24 hours. It, it, it sounds pretty miraculous, and they're trying to sell this technology to China. If it ever worked, uh, Asi and I will be multimillionaires on the, <laughs> uh, you know, 200 shares that, we, uh, that I own. The, uh, um, but uh, it, it doesn't show any signs of working at the moment. As a stock investment, I don't recommend it. It's lost half of its value in the time I've been following it. But the, the point is that kind of work is going on to find the ideal way of taking water and reusing it, purifying it. Um, the, the perfect toilet technologies, there are various models, as we know. The, there's the old Australian simply drop pit. There's the two-pit model, which has been offered in India for years. Um, there's the membrane technology seems to offer some possibilities. Toilets that will allow you every fortnight to simply remove a bag of benign material and put it out as you would put out the ashes from an old uh, Victorian house's fireplace. Now, again, these technologies haven't been uh, upscaled so that they're mass technologies, but there are various, there's a project the, uh, in Britain at the University of Sussex that's working on this kind of toilet. There's a, the EchoSan toilets that are used in some of our, used in um, the Daintree Forest in northern Queensland to you for tourist centers produce a very nice waste, but they're they're too clunky, they're too difficult, they're they're too big for uh, urban use in in a place like India. There's another uh, very nice model that's apparently being used in tens of thousands of homes or homesteads in South Africa. Uh, which the proprietor has tried to take to India, but again, it's, he's been told it's not suitable for India, though it is suitable for South Africa where there's rather more space. So that's a long-winded way of saying there's lots of things going on, but even Bill and Melinda Gates haven't quite found the winning combination for water purification and uh, toilet sanitation. And, and the, when I, in the Kangra Valley, they tried to introduce these kind of composting toilets. And when I asked people, why aren't you using it? Nobody would touch the bucket. Nobody would, this is excrement. This is ritually polluting. So it, it needs to be something that works within that context. Something that is actually a small-scale technology that is working is those trucks called honeysuckers, mm -hmm. which um, they come into places in South India, and they, because they sell septic tanks, but they're not septic tanks. They're, they're, they're just like tanks were, with feces in them and in these urban centers, and they're piling up, and you need to clean them up. So there's, there's these initiatives, uh, small trucks that can go into those uh, lanes, and uh, in the night, again, under the, the cover of night, they suck the feces, and they can, if it's treated well and it's sold to the, uh, to the farmers, it could be actually quite, uh, quite useful as a compost, as fertilizer. Unfortunately, many of these people are wanting to make a buck. And what they do is and they take, they take uh, those trucks and, and, and the, again uh, at night they go into the uh, backwaters of Kerala and you can see them just putting it into the water. How political is waste management in India? Because as you say, that caste is there and I have lived most of my life in Delhi where she's uh, in Delhi University also. Because blaming caste itself is political. Ah, so what do you say to that? Thank you. 
Yeah, I, th I think you're. I think what you say is right. It is a, a it's a highly charged political and social question. The, uh, um, it's what you can say about uh, the waste in India. I think is that it's not yet corporately political, as it would be in North America or indeed even in Australia, I suppose, which companies are going to get the big contracts, because there are very few, at the moment, attractive big contracts. Uh, I was at a, a meeting last week in Singapore where the CEO of probably the biggest of India's corporates involved in waste management came and spoke. And he, he was saying, uh, he's, he's a man who's been in the business for 30 years and has an environmental science degree. Uh, he, he said, look, my, my, the uh, corporation I, in which my company is one of a number of companies, um, it's not here to make a lot of money. We're certainly not here to lose money, that is, in the waste business in India. But we're not here to make a lot of money. That's, we recognize we're not going to do that. Now, that's unlike the situation, I think, in... Uh, the so-called developed West, where in America two of the Fortune 500 com largest companies are waste management companies, Waste Management Inc. and Republic Services. Uh, we see, I think, in Australia, Veolia, the big French company, uh, doing a lot of waste. These are multinational global organizations, and their contracts and their bidding for contracts is intensely political in, in, in that way. In India, it's a much more local social politics uh, kind of politicization. My name's Craig Jeffrey. I'm a director of the Australia India Institute. So part of my function is simply to say thank you and a very heartfelt thank you to, first of all, our panelists this evening, um, Sally, Assi, uh, Dolly and Robin, for really uh, just such a spellbinding conversation about rubbish. And we're really so grateful to, to, to all of you for... Um, for this opportunity to celebrate the book, but also to hear over 90 minutes such a, a wonderful example about why social science is so important in the contemporary moment. And it almost wouldn't have mattered what you were talking about. To hear the passion and the, 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 the vision that you brought to, to this topic was in itself mm -hmm. part of the me message. I'd also like to thank uh, Diana and Cassie and Simon, uh, Tom, Matthew at La Trobe and at, at the AAI for organizing everything um, this evening. The Australia India Institute has as one of its themes infrastructure. Our other ones are education, health, and governance and security. And it strikes me that actually that waste, although it seems to align most nicely with infrastructure, actually covers those four themes uh, uh, in a really lovely way. And actually, uh, one thing, one quick reflection I wanted to to, to offer was that uh, one thing I've really learned from Assi and Robin in their writing is is, is about their capacity to identify a topic whether it be mobile phones or waste. Mm. And in, in focusing you know, resolutely and in such a committed way on that topic, they prize open a whole series of debates around power, territory, caste, gender, inequality, place, scale, and in the process open them up for fresh analysis. So while we learned a huge amount this evening about waste, we also learned a lot about what matters in contemporary India. So thank you so much for writing such a brilliant book. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to celebrate it this evening in such a, a lovely way. Thank you again, all of you. Thank you.